Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And you can always find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, GoodPods, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As for our social media, I am on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube as Let's Talk Micro, on X as Let's Talk Micro 1, on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza, and I have an email address which is letstalkmicro at outlook.com. So please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, download episodes. If the app allows you to leave a review, please go ahead and do so. And if you have any feedback, any topic suggestions, you know, you can submit those via social media or via email. Any feedback, any suggestions, they are always welcome and appreciated. And if you haven't checked out the previous episode, please go ahead and do so. Um, I went ahead and went over Molotov, like the components, you know, explaining all the parts. How does it work? How does it help in, in clinical microbiology? And some of you that maybe have been following me for since I started or maybe early on, you know that I did a two-part series on Molotov two years ago. You know, but I thought that sometimes, you know, with new followers and people maybe start listening to the new episodes and maybe not going back to the old content. And I did a, a webinar with the ASCLS about Molotov. And it is a trending topic, so I thought it would be good to maybe talk about it again. That way the new listeners can benefit from it. Maybe now the new listeners, you know, they are either starting a class in microbiology, maybe they're starting a, mic a medical laboratory sciences program, maybe they just got a job in microbiology. So definitely bottom line, it was a good time to talk about Molotov again. So check it out if you haven't done so already. And stay tuned for a second episode of Molotov where I will be talking about the advantages and disadvantages. You know, it's a wonderful technology. It has helped out so much in the lab. But unfortunately, uh, it has brought sometimes, you know, some disadvantages. It has changed the way of thinking and sometimes, you know, not for the better. So I thought it would be a good time to also talk about that. So stay tuned for that episode. So as you know, there are some wonderful microbiology podcasts out there besides this one, right? Um, and I have I had the fortune and the chance to collaborate with them. You know, and their content varies from you know from uh, the micro moment where they go, you know, they focus on the historical perspective of organisms for the most part. And then you have like micro male, will they talk you know about antibiotics, they talk about organisms. Then, the, then there's uh, Fibra with uh, Sarah Dong. Um, you know, she's a, a pediatric infectious disease uh, physician. And then there's the Infectious Disease Insight of Two Specialists podcast, or, you know, as it's abbreviated, Idiots, which, you know, they're based in the UK. They go over organisms. You know, they, both of them, uh, James and Callum, they are infectious disease physicians. And they go over organisms and they they go over antibiotics too so definitely it's a very successful very famous podcast i think they're you know they're doing really well getting lots of downloads and i had the chance to talk to um to callum a while ago and this time i got to collaborate with both of them which is what this episode is so you can actually find this episode on both platforms they released theirs uh earlier than i'm doing um, but bottom line is, you know, once you finish listening to this episode, you know, continue checking 
Let's Talk Micro and then go over to their podcast and check out their episodes. You know, they have some great content as well. I do listen to some of their episodes. A lot of times if I'm going to do one that's the same content, I don't until I do mine. That way to kind of reduce bias. But overall, this is a great episode. And we we went ahead and started talking about, you know, requisitions in the lab, like things like where what are we expecting to see in lab requisitions, you know, what physicians should be adding. You know, we should see things, you know, like right, like the sores and things like that. Um, you know, we talked about uh, prolonging incubation. You know, if if there are things where we maybe need to prolong the incubation, you know, we talk about media. And how do we apply our thinking? And based on on the source, you know, do we add extra media? Is this something that it's done from the beginning, or is it done on the reading side? So overall, it was a great conversation. It's always you know great chatting with fellow microbiology podcasters. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's go ahead and listen to it. Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast. That's infectious disease insight of three specialists. I'm Jane, that's Callum, over there's Luis, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? I f- think we need to talk, Jane. About what, Callum? Let's talk... Micro. Let's stop micro, but isn't the host of Let's Stop Micro on the on the on the line? Hey, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Luis, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. Thank you for this opportunity to be talking to you. I mean, I'm it's actually really nice. Um I had a chance to uh you know before to talk to Callum and so it's mm. it's great that I'm I get to talk to both of you. So yeah, no, it's it's real nice to finally put a a, a face to the name and the voice. We should introduce each other as podcasts. Luis, why don't you tell us a bit about the Let's Talk Micro podcast? Well, the Let's Talk Micro podcast, uh, you know, I started over two years ago, and it always came for the from this need to share information, to talk to people. I always enjoy it from from training uh, uh, by medical science uh, students, which here we call them medical laboratory scientists. So I always had, I'm always like to talk, and I always give people more information that they need, and I'm pointing to people, hey, you know, look at this package insert or check out this book, and at some point in time, I decided, you know what, just let me talk about it. And, and I started thinking about a podcast and it seemed that it was a little bit difficult uh, getting started. And But then it turns out that when I, I slowed down, and I did the research and it was easier than I thought. It was just, you know, there are many providers out there. So it's just about recording, you know, getting some cover art, proper equipment. And then I started. And it was also about, you know, as working on the bench and seeing cultures day in and day out, you know, you start microbiology, you know, it's, it's all about roots and you start seeing things over and over again. And then you start noticing, wait a minute, uh, you know, this organism maybe is growing on this agar that is not designed for it. Or, you know, it's like a back end or you're showing supplies and you want to recover this, but we don't have it. So what can we use? So all those little, little tricks I started, you know, noticing and i'm like okay you know i just i want to share this with you and luis who's your who's your main audience and and do you have any idea who's who's listening and who's who's tuning in well my my main audience you know so when i started it was definitely mainly targeted for the for the the medical laboratory science students 
um, you know, and in professionals as well. So it's just, there is so much information in this field and then working day in and day out, you know, it's, 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 you know, training happens quick and it's very gray. A lot of times, you know, you have to know all this information about these organisms, you know, other flora, other pathogens and based on the source and things like that. Um, so I just want to make sure that they, they had a better access to it and they could understand mm-hmm. it a little bit better. But as I went along and find out that I'm also getting, you know, like directors, you know, they're listening to the podcast. I have, uh, uh, people in the industry, pharmacists. Mm-hmm. I I went to a microbe 2023 recently in Houston. That's from the American Society for Microbiology. Oh yes, I saw that on um, on Twitter, and you were a roaring success. I saw. Yes, no, it, it was great. I really met people presenting posters. I handed little stickers with QR codes so people could go, go check out the podcast. And I get recognized a few times, and some of those were actually people like you know that were pharmacists. And directors are like, oh, yeah, I listen to your podcast. Or are you Lewis from Let's Talk Micro? And that's the first Ooh. time you know, it felt a little, right, a little, a little bit of a Hollywood feel. You know, <laughs> like, like, like here I am being recognized for something I do. Um, because, you know, you sit here, you record, and you're not doing it live. So you don't know who's actually listening to it. So yeah. actually putting some faces to the listeners, it, it was a great experience. And I, I enjoy this. I mean, even if I... If I only had one listener, I will still do it because it's just I feel like even just talking about it and doing research, you know, I'm 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 improving myself. I mean, I'm trying to keep current with the with the resources, with the information, and just I feel that since doing this, you know, I have grown so much, you know, professionally, like my knowledge that it's just it's really great. I sp- speaking as maybe I, I could be that one listener because uh, we were saying before we started recording that I'm revising for my part two fellowship exams, which if you are going to sit, we've got an episode about how to revise for that. So go back and have a listen to that. And I've been listening to a lot of Let's Talk Micro as revision. It's been really useful. So thanks again for doing that. And would agree with that feeling of when people come up to you and say that they're a listener. And uh, that's a really nice feeling just to know that there is somebody out there listening and um, that people appreciate it. So Jane, what's the Idiots podcast? I've not heard of that one. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad you asked, Cal. The Idiots podcast is the UK's premier infectious disease podcast. Uh, started again uh, two years ago. A lot of ID and microbiology podcasts seem to start two years ago for no particular reason. And we are focusing on the uh, kind of the basics of infectious disease that uh, a core infection trainee would want to acquire in order to be able to pass their their UK exams. So our initial focus was kind of very much on on doctors training in infectious disease or microbiology in the UK. But but much like you, uh, Luis, the the audience has turned out to be much greater uh, than that. So we've got we we did an audience survey. Um, uh, recently and it's about two-thirds doctors but one-third everything else so yeah, anything you can imagine biomedical scientists nurses uh, you name it so we've we've kind of realized that our audience is a bit bigger than we we had uh, thought which is great you know the more people that know about infections and, and how to deal with them the better um, but our, our sort of core mission is really to at least for the first few years is to kind of uh, develop podcast episodes which function as resources for people to learn about you know all the bugs all the drugs and when we get bored 
we all talk about certain clinical syndromes or do a journal club episode or just talk about a topic on infection in general that that tickles our fancy isn't that right Callum yes thank you Callum so on to the questions hey eh? so what are we talking about today Callum two main strands and the first strand I thought would be useful to talk about which we've not we've not talked about idiots and I think you've covered on let's talk micro and I guess our question would be for those who are listening who, who aren't aware who don't work with a medical lab scientists group or with biomedical scientists or who who aren't in that group what is a medical lab scientist or biomedical scientist uh, what do they do uh, how does one become that like what training do you have to go to get to that stage that is a great question, and and before I, I answer it, um, you know, I just want to say that yeah, um, you know, thank you uh, for listening to the episodes, and I have listened to yours, and this is one of those things that, and you know, we talked about a little bit about it before, but you know, as I was looking for other podcasts, and then I found yours, and and, and as a medical laboratory scientist, you know, and I'll, I'll talk about what we do, but you know, we don't have much interaction, you know, with, with infectious disease the doctors, you know, we typically just, what we see is like a request to work something up or maybe a quick phone call. So it's always interesting seeing what happens, right? We work with the results and we put them out there and, and seeing how, you know, the treatment, the choices, you know, for me, just connecting those two, it's, it's great. So just like you said, you know, uh, a biomedical scientist, medical laboratory scientist, a lot of people are unaware of what we do, and this is something that's it's a ongoing struggle. I mean, you, you people typically they're already about to graduate college, or they have already a degree, and then they find out about this. Maybe they know someone that knows someone that completed this degree. So when you think about it, right? So you you go to to the doctor, and then they collect a sample. It could be you know right throat hurts or anything like that cholesterol. Um, you're getting you know checking your hemoglobin. So that is tested. Those results, you know, if they are tested, that sample is tested by a medical laboratory scientist, sorry, biomedical scientist and a medical lab scientist. So that's what we do. We process those samples and then we actually do the testing on it and we produce results. So it can be, there are four main areas. You, know, you have blood bank where we do the type and screen, you know, for your units, your ABO, uh, we do antibody screens. Then, you know, you have hematology, where you do, you know, hematocrit, hemoglobin, you do cell counts. You move on to there's clinical chemistry where you analyze glucose, cholesterol, hormones, and you have microbiology where we do, you know, we do PCR testing and we test for viruses, you know, bacteria, fungi. So me, yes, I have work in all the other areas, but I don't know. And and but let me just go first with the the education. So. There are some some variation, but you can work in this. You know, the, the main one will be a bachelor's degree in medical laboratory scientist, sciences. And then you have different programs where maybe you do three years of undergrad with some you know, required courses. And then your final year, it's in laboratory that or you have the two and two where you do those two years of undergrad and then the last two years they are related to the lab with a clinical rotation, or you can also, some programs they require that you already have a degree like in biology or chemistry with some required courses. And then you do that one year of like didactic and, and laboratory, you know, your, your clinical rotation. So yeah, so that, that is the training. And then, 
you know, I touch on the other areas. And for me, as a medical laboratory scientist in microbiology, you know, we do all sorts of testing, um, all sources. So we do from, from, you know, like a, from PCR testing, any type of rapid testing, like influenza, um, you know, um, streptococcus pneumoniae, rapid strep, uh, PCR and group B strep. And then I concentrate heavily on working on, on culture. So, you know, those samples they are played in an agar, and then we look for the presence of organisms. And then based on the source on the organism, we produce identification and do susceptibility testing. And then we have to make the determination, you know, the organism that's growing here based on the source, you know, is it, is it a pathogen or is it part of the, of the commensal flora? And with the susceptibilities, right? Make sure that that susceptibility pattern matches to the organism, um, do any extra testing that is required. So it's, it's great work and I love it and I recommend it. And I think that we are making progress and um, some medical lab sciences programs, you know, they're going out there, they're going to high schools, they're, they're going to colleges and, and promoting the field. So it's an exciting time. Luisa, I have to ask at this point, I've, I've wondered this for years. Um, what is your day job? Like, what, what are you doing day to day? Are you, you on the cultures benches? Are you supervising? Um, yeah, so I was a supervisor for a little bit and it had its, you know, good things and at least not so good things. Um, so ultimately I ended up not being in that position anymore. As of right now, I am a, I am a lead medical uh, lab science, scientist and I am in charge of the quality control of the microbiology lab. So oh, everything yeah, yeah. from agar, from yeah, from testing, I make sure that we're complying with the requirements that we're doing either, you know, performing the QC either like a lot shipment, make mm -hmm. sure the agar, you know, if it needs quality control, sterility. But I do work on the bench and I do work with cultures from from pretty much all the areas, from wound cultures to urine cultures. So I'm all over the lab and do a lot of susceptibility testing. So as of right now, I'm still heavily involved. So that will be my main job. And then as a part-time job, I, I work as a laboratory instructor mm -hmm. at a medical laboratory sciences program here in Florida. Excellent. So thanks. I, I hope that makes it clear because I think sometimes, certainly as a clinician prior to training in microbiology, I don't think I really understood that aspect of the role. And I think that aligns pretty well with what a biomedical scientist in the UK uh, does this you know it's a really skilled job and require a lot of training to get to the point of being able to do that and we really rely on that expertise in the laboratory i guess the second part of what we wanted to speak about is kind of related to that i think it's about the interface between clinicians and the laboratory and i think this is something that can be a bit tricky because when you're asking for something if you don't understand how the thing is done it can be a bit tricky to know what you're asking for, if that makes sense. So I, I, I guess what I mean by that is if you're requesting a, a test, if you don't understand how the test is performed and what factors changed the way in which the test is performed, you might not request the test in the right way. I think there's a book recently published called How to Request a Test, um, which I saw and uh, haven't read yet, but one of my colleagues said was really useful for this question. So I guess 
Luis, I would like to just talk about a little bit about that part of the sort of pre-analytical phase. So how tests are requested and that, how that influences what happens in the lab. So I guess the first question is, as a medical lab scientist, what do you look at in the specimen request details? You know, what, what information are you looking at when you're going off to do, uh, let's say, a throat swab or some other yeah, some investigation? So, yeah, all the way from from the ordering, you know, that's that's a challenge that happens in the lab. And sometimes, you know, we have the issues with, with the laboratory information system and where sometimes, you know, we get providers that order everything or, you know, there's a catalog of tests and maybe some that are not done at our hospital, but they order that one and we have to, you know, work with that and check with them and make sure that offer the one that we do in-house or they want something else, you know, to let them know and then uh, notify them and then send that sample away. But whether it be like a paper request or you get it, you know, electronic. So we definitely, you know, want to make sure that, of course, right, the patient identifiers. We want to make sure that it's properly labeled, that, you know, you have the information that that it needs with the, you know, the addressographic information of the patient, you know, name, date of birth. And that, you know, we, with the sample as well, we want to make sure that our sample is it's labeled uh, with all that information, not just one last name, right? It's just only one name that's just very difficult and... And, you know, if, if it's missing information, unless it's like a critical sample, an irretrievable sample, right? If you get a, a, a cerebral spinal fluid label, I mean, we have to call them and then we fill out a form explaining what happened and then the sample is labeled. But if it's something like, let's say, just like a blood or tube or, or something like that, then we just completely reject it and that sample does not get tested at all. So proper labeling, that's the first thing that we have to make sure. Um, that we do, right? We're definitely putting a result out there that's going to go to patient's chart and that's going to affect the the course of the treatment. So if that result is erroneous, you know, we're, we're putting that patient in harm. So that will be the first step. And then also, um, we're also looking at, right, what order, the, the source of the sample. And that's a big one. You know, uh, many times I find myself working on a culture and then it just says, uh, sample source and it just says wound. I'm like, okay, it is a wound, right? I'm working on the wound bench and it's obviously, you know, it is a wound, but I need to know where many things change depending on the source, right? You wouldn't treat the same, let's say a sample that's maybe from enteric area, like from another source, right? You know, you have a lot of enteric bacteria. You consider that into factor. If you start seeing multiple, you know, let's say enterobacterialis in that area of the body versus on our wound or something like that. So the source is very important. You want to know, right? If you have something respiratory, you start seeing that say, you know, you start seeing maybe like I can help out or things like that. Or... So it always, it helps you correlate that with the culture and it makes you make the proper determination when you are working it up. And for those of the listeners out there, when you call it work it up, it's just, you know, you are evaluating the culture you're doing seeing the organisms and then you're making that determination. Okay. I have here, you know, normal skin flora or, or a pharyngeal flora or something like that. Or if you have something like, you know, like staph aureus, E. coli, pseudomonas. So we definitely need to know the source. That's very important. And then the other thing is, and I don't know, maybe is also, you know, collection time, you know, it's very important. You want to make sure that because it's just, you know, sometimes, you know, that you have, like a great example is when we used to do the, the occult blood, you know, 
test for the stool that we used to get the three. And then they don't put the collection time or they put it on it just, they're all like maybe like a minute apart. It's like, well, you know, that, that doesn't count. You're just not making the proper evaluation. It's just, you know, that sample is probably from, you know, from the one time. So that's also something that's very important. And if you are suspecting anything, that's just a potential, you know, that it's just an organism that normally, you know, like it's either a potential bioterror agent or, or, you know, that is very abnormal, you know, please let us know so we can start taking the proper precautions. Well, yeah, those are, those are the things that we look at. And, and just to touch a little bit on what you mentioned earlier, you know, with the biomedical lab scientists, one thing, and at least here in the States, is sometimes people think that, you know, that you just do a bachelor's in microbiology and you, that just guarantees you, uh, you know, a job in the lab. And that's not the case. You know, you do have to go through one of these um, medical lab sciences schools, you know, like a program and get a certification. Yeah, it's a, it's a complex journey to get there. And I think that's, you know, probably a global issue amongst every lab, isn't it? That you're getting samples that are uh, incorrectly labeled. You don't know who they're from. You're having to reject them. And nobody wants to be the person that says, you know, we had to reject the samples, particularly if it's a precious one. And every effort is made to try and do that. But when you're when you're dealing with thousands of samples or, you know, that's not safe to process it, the worst thing that we could do is release a report and say your patient's got this pathogen and they don't. So that, you know, it's that could be really bad if we if it was accepting, you know, poorly labeled samples. Um, I guess the other thing that came to my mind was, you know, th there's some clinical situations, I think, where actually the clinical details change what's done in the lab. Um, what is there any examples of that that the the of you can that can share? The one that comes to mind for me is that, that I learned about when I went and did the bench training the, the brief bench training that I got to do was um, that throat swab. So you send a bacterial throat swab to the laboratory and if you put on it that the patient had recurrent tonsillitis and then it might get worked up for a different organism or if they had um, long-standing throat pain, then we might work up for something else. So I think it was, was a Fusobacterium and Necroforum was one and the other one was Ar Arcanobacterium. Correct me if I'm wrong there. So I found that really interesting because as the person who had previously been ordering the throat swabs, I had no idea about that. And I wonder if that was a little bit of a, a failing of our of our, our ordering system and that it didn't allow you to, it didn't prompt users to say what's important. Is that something that's reflected in your area area of practice or is that something that, that isn't an issue for you? So, yeah, we had some issues and I know that there are some restrictions in place. I think uh, it comes when... Uh, you know, when I mentioned that when ordering that are called uh, blood tests and also when I think there's one for blood cultures as well. Um, I think one that, that wasn't a prompt and then we tried building one was for ordering uh, parasites, you know, um, like um, ONP uh, exams. And, and because we were getting so many, you know, patient with diarrhea, just collect a sample and then we were getting so swamped and then. We built some restrictions, you know, that they had to, the physicians had to answer, like, you know, like, is there like a travel history and some other questions? And they, they were able to answer all three, then it will let the system will let them order the test. And that worked well for a while. And then we switched to another system and the restriction, I guess it wasn't updated with the system. And we started getting that flood again and we were working on it. Um, those are the two that come to mind. Um, but as far as as other things with history like that, it's that's mostly something that we do look out on the side that 
when we're actually working the cultures. I mean, as part of our standard bit of work, you know, we check check the history, see if the organism is the same. And then depending on the source, uh, if it's within 48, well, we do 72 hours, we can refer the organism to the other one and then just not perform a susceptibility on it. Um, we just have to make sure, right, that in cases like uh, if you have staph aureus, you have to make sure that either they're both MRSAs or they're both MSSA. You're going to do that type of thing of referring to susceptibility. Mm. But we do we do keep an eye on, on on the history. And typically, if we see that there is a patient that has a history of an MDRO, we kind of just start, you know, start setting up the, the reflex ahead of time just to save a day because, you know, we know it's well documented there. Or if we... Or we see in the history that there's an organism, you know, we make sure that we go ahead and and add an extra blade if it needs to, or maybe if it needs to be incubated longer, we do that just to make sure we don't miss it. Uh, Luis, what clinical information would make you want to put a culture in for prolonged incubation these days? Um, well, one one definitely uh, one that's uh, big. It's if we have let's say you know if a patient with like a history of uh, nocardia. Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely want to make sure that we keep or, or if there's no history, I mean, if we do see the gram positive, like the beta rods on the initial gram stain, and maybe if, right for, for a little bit for the, for later and out there, if, you know, as I talked about what we do in the lab, so right initially we get that sample and then we put it on the agar with some nutrients and it has the conditions that the organisms need to grow. And we also perform an, uh, a gram stain, which I will be the direct smear. And if we see anything like that, we just kind of make sure that we, but we seal the plates and then we, we notify someone and make sure that we hold them for seven days. And so uh, that's, that's a really big one. Um, The same thing we have, you know, if we have sometimes, you know, like a mold or make sure that, you know, we're kind of looking out for it, if we need to add an extra plate or hold it longer. So those are really the type of scenarios that we, we encounter the most. Yeah. I think, um, there's this whole, there's definitely a, a gulf sometimes in knowledge between the clinician and the laboratory in terms of knowing what's going to be processed. And that's not going to be the same for everybody. Um, and I guess at points I've felt like, oh, well, you know, the often the request details that we get is just like blank. So just the, the space or people say like monitoring or they don't really give you that detail that we need in order to, to process a sample right. But more recently, I think I've kind of changed my mind on the onus being on the user. And actually, it's kind of difficult to know when you're ordering a test if you don't understand the laboratory. And it's not, I don't think it's reasonable for us to expect everybody to um, have a full understanding of what's actually happening, although I would love that. So maybe the onus is more on the laboratory um, as a whole to design systems that mean that when you're ordering a test, it forces you to answer the questions that we want answered. So if you're ordering blood cultures, it, it forces the user to say, you know, okay, have they been to any areas that are sort of tropical areas? Is there any risk of typhoid, I guess, is what we want to know. And these are questions which are really important for the lab, but the clinician might not think to have even asked the patient or um, include in the specimen request. So I guess, I guess on to the next question is, is there like key safety information that people should be putting onto requests? And if so, what is that? Yeah, definitely. And and, and before I move on, you know, this, this came to mind as I was 
uh, listening. And, you know, we also, before in the past, you know, um, with a previous blood culture system, you know, we were, we used to hold them and we got physicians requesting uh, to hold the culture. So sometimes, you know, 14 days to make sure that we didn't miss like a nutritionally deficient strep or the same thing to hold them longer for brucella. And one of the requests that we get a lot, it's uh, for QT bacterium to make sure that we hold them, you know, 14 days. And that's something that we do with, uh, you know, like sources that are like from the knee. Um, we definitely hold them for 14 days, but we still get those. Mm. Um, as far as the blood cultures with the systems, you know, some of the system out there, a lot of these organisms, they're detected very fast. So really the, the prolonged incubation time is not necessary. And, and the pathogens, we do get them. I mean, cutie bacterium, it really, you know, on a blood culture, especially, you know, it, it pops positive about day four, three to four on average. Yeah. So we do, yeah. So we do get them. So those are not necessary, but we still get a lot. Sometimes, you know, we do get the request, especially if we have sometimes, you know, maybe I was saying like old school physicians and that sometimes, you know, they order some tests, you know, the way that they were before and things like that. Um, but yeah, those are the ones that um, come to mind. But as far as precautions, you know, if there's a history or, and a great example, and I, I talked about this before on other podcasts and with other people, a lot of times that we had like a Bruxelles exposure, um, sometimes, you know, they, they kind of were thinking about it and no one said anything. So, and just to give some background to the listener, right? So when we're, when we're working um, the plates, right, we typically, so we go ahead and we try to identify them right? We're not getting that ID. So the next step is, right? Okay, well, maybe let me consult with a more experienced coworker. Um, so you do that. And then that person looks at the plates and then, or maybe, okay, let me check with my lead or my supervisor. So bottom line, sometimes, you know, you have four or five people looking at these plates. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, okay, it turned out to be Brucella. And everyone has been, you know, being put on prophylaxis and and things like that. And just, and then we find out that they kind of knew. So if you're suspecting anything and that comes around, right? When you're taking the history of the patient and, and you're thinking there's some travel history or something like that, or, and you think that maybe, you know, be on the lookout for this, if you are able, you know, if you're thinking about that, if you're suspecting it, please let them not know because, you know, it changes the way that we treat the sample, right? So it goes back to, we, you know, we get the samples, we play them. Most of the plates that we work, you know, here in the in the micro lab, lab, you know, we we work with them in the open. I mean, we use our PPE, we have our gowns, you know, we have our gloves. We should, I think, some people maybe some that have been working longer times don't do that, and that I don't like that. But we definitely have that. I mean, with with COVID, I think more people start incorporating where you know wearing the mask. So yes, we take yeah. we take those precautions. But if you tell us, you know, you're thinking about that. We immediately, from the moment that we get that sample, you know, we, I mean, we go to our, you know, our BSL two or BSL three, and then we just go to that, and we go to the BSC, and then we process the sample under the hood. You know, we make sure we keep everything there, we seal it, so we will handle it differently than you just having, you know, waving that plate around for three or four days, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's it's Brucella. So with experience. You know, since we function as a reference lab, when we get a plate that says, you know, maybe like gram-negative cacobacilli for ID, you know, we're kind of careful to make sure that maybe go to the hood and open it there. And if you see tiny growth, you know, just proceed with caution. But bottom line, you know, if, if we got those warnings ahead of time, 
if they put it on the request, it will definitely change the way that we treat the sample. Yeah, it's hugely important. I, I was just, as you were saying that some, a, a voice popped into my head and it said, don't sniff the plates and, or don't smell your plates, stay safe. I heard that on a podcast somewhere. So maybe, maybe you should have that on a, on a, on a t-shirt. I don't know if you're getting merch, but I think that whole lab safety thing is really important. And I do think Jane, that maybe we are, maybe you've already done this, Luis is have an episode about lab safety in the uk we've got this group called the advisory council for dangerous pathogens and they publish a list called the approved list of biological agents and they categorize pathogens into groups one to four with group four being the ones that are very serious and cause um serious hazard to employees that usually likely to spread to communities no effective prophylaxis or treatment available and all organisms are categorized into one of those four groups and the way that the lab works, you know, if there's risk of these group three or four organisms, then you you process a sample in a different way. So it's really important for the team to to know that information, and they won't know unless it's in a request detail or someone phones. Um, so yeah, I think that lab safety aspect is a is a real key consideration as um, um, as a microbiologist in the lab or the clinician that's that's ordering the test. Uh, so, Luis, is there anything else that you would say, any other examples of things that you would change in the lab if the clinical details said one thing rather than the other? Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, the the orders, they change from, from lab to lab, and there are some things that kind of just maybe remain standard, right? Maybe a wound culture, or there might be another phrasing to it. Um, some places, maybe they call it like miscellaneous, and then they, when you think about your standard setup, you know, for most of you doing like urine cultures, right? You do blood uh, and you do McConkie. And then if you have a regular culture, you do blood, chocolate and McConkie, which, you know, if, for the listeners out there, depending on where you are, if you maybe are training or you're starting to learn, right? So it gives pretty much all the organisms a chance to grow. You know, uh, it gives the gram negatives a better chance than the McConkie. You get, you're getting your fastidious with the chocolate and then the blood pretty much grows everything. Um, but if we see something, uh, for example, say there are genital cultures in the lab uh, where they get uh, they get like a limb broth or chart for group B strep. And then there's also a Thayer Martin uh, for Neisseria gonorrhea. So if we get, let's say, a wound culture that the source is genital, then we go ahead and, you know, we add that, uh, that Thayer Martin plane. A lot of times... And this is not on the request, but definitely if you're working like a blood culture and we see both gram positive and gram negative, you know, we throw a PEA. Um, if we see that there's a history, maybe a mold, you know, we can just go ahead and add some fungal media just to kind of make sure that we're giving the organism a chance. I mean, you don't know, maybe on the gram stain you can tell, but you don't know, you know, if it's going to be like a polymicrobial infection and you might have a lot of things on your plate, so... At the very least, you know, you take that caution and and by adding those plates, you're giving those organisms a chance if they are there, so you don't miss them. Thanks. I think it's a really um, key part is that, like how how much the details in that pre-analytical phase, like before the lab work starts, can affect what it is. Because if we don't know the clinical details, then we won't know what extra plates are set up to look for organisms, and you might miss something. And then the clinician gets back a result saying culture negative and they relax. And it was interesting what you were saying about some of those older school clinicians 
asking for specific things and maybe they're a bit out of date and they don't actually know what the standard lab practice is but at least they're engaged in the process and at least they're thinking about asking the lab for extra things. I think for me one thing that I find really helpful is there's the UK standards for microbiological investigation, the UK SMIs, which we've certainly spoken about before. And just thinking of two examples, so SMI 11, investigation of swabs from skin and superficial soft tissue infections, they lay out that everybody should get blood agar and uh, cled or McConkie, and then they say add in different agars for different things. So if it's a traumatic wound, add in a plate for anaerobes. If it's a cellulitis from a human animal bite, add in the chocolate agar looking for hemophilus. If it's a burn patient or diabetic or is into trigor or paronychia, add in the saburo agar for, for yeast and mold and et cetera, like Hoyle's agar for, for diphtheria. Um, and another example is um, in the context of SMI 17, which is investigation of tissues and biopsies from deep-seated sites. There's so many supplementary agar uh, that they suggest, and also like some of the growth conditions are different. If you're thinking about things like nocardia or tino uh, organisms, branching gram-positive bacilli, that we should do an episode on. So it's really important. And I think for those precious samples, there's probably someone in the lab thinking about it, and there might be the microbiolo- a clinical microbiologist looking at the, the patient's notes or speaking to clinicians and saying like, what do you actually want done on this? So actually maybe it's even less important for those critical samples it's more the routine ones. I don't know if you agree with this, but like the ones that, you know, just go through the lab very quickly, maybe that's where it's more important to say if you want something specific. And then the unusual specimens, then we tend to pay a bit more attention to those anyway, because they're a bit more rare. Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, this, you know, it's, it's something that definitely we do pay more attention to the unusual ones. And then from the routine ones, sometimes, you know, things do get missed or they get delayed. We get that many samples, and this is something that, as we, right, we were telling you know the provider, make sure that you're putting all this in, and then on the lab we should be able right to question this. And a lot of times, you know, they just the moment that you get that requisition and, and something is missing or or it doesn't match or something like that, you know, just make sure that right away you talk to the physician, you let them know, so it can be corrected. You know, sometimes you know we we catch these errors and things missing. You know, 24 hours later, when we were looking at the culture on the plate, you know, we, we end up delaying patient care to have all the information. So it just, you know, it takes the effort of, of everyone, really, you know, from that pre-analytical phase, right, from when the sample is collected and we get and prior to testing and then, you know, the analytical and post-analytical. So if something starts wrong from the beginning and we're missing, then it's just the whole thing kind of gets, yeah, it gets a little skewed and and... And at the end, you know, it's just the, the one that gets affected, it's, it's the patient because we're put, delaying the results. And and I said this over and over again, right? Micro, it's all about time. So something goes wrong and it costs you a day. And yeah, it takes a lot of teamwork and communication between all parts. It's a key point well made that at the end of the day, everyone's aim is to get the best result for that patient. So giving the clinical details is really, is really key to us getting there and the lab is often a really high throughput place. And, you know, there's not time for your uh, medical lab scientist or biomedical scientist to be chasing up every time the clinical details aren't complete. You know, it's just not feasible. So if you want your, as a clinician, if you want your patient to get the best possible investigation, then you really need to put those clinical details in. And I think as lab, 
um, or a lab manager maybe, uh, you should be thinking, how do we make it easy for people to provide that information? How do we mandate the questions? Because we know that the questions that we want answered, but we don't know the answers to them. And the clinicians know the answers, but they don't know the questions. So we need to find ways for the the questions yeah. to be asked and answered. Does that yes. make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and um, yeah, yeah. Always be receptive to feedback. So if you're in the lab and you hear suggestions, you know, be receptive and, and the other way around. So if you feel that there's something better that can be done, yeah, by always, all right, don't be afraid. Just bring it up. I and mean, all they can say is no, but that's it. And if you don't ask, you don't get. And garbage in, garbage out. That's a computing term. But yeah, yeah if you put yeah. bad information in the beginning, then you're going to get a bad result out at the end. And uh, James, do you have anything to add? This is, I think this might be the episode where you've spoken the least. The knowledge getting dropped on us, Cal. No, no, I don't have anything to add. Uh, Louise, thanks very much for coming on the show. Yeah, no, my, my pleasure. So, but definitely, you know, thank you for the opportunity. And, and like I said, you know, I like, I listen to your episodes, you know, it, it connects what happens on the other side. And yeah, so to your listeners, you know, if definitely... I'm always very reachable and then it'll be a social media or, or email. And once you have listened to the idiots, um, uh, episodes, you know, take a look, let's talk micro and on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube as let's talk micro and, and what is called now X are we st- we're all still getting used to that. Um, let's just, talk yeah. micro one. Yeah. And then, uh, then email, which is let's talk micro outlook.com. So, any suggestions, any, you know, any feedback, if you have, if you think that you have a good topic and and you want to reach out to do an episode, I'm always receptive to that. So yeah, please feel free to reach out. Brilliant. All right. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Uh, Questions, comments, suggestions, uh, send them into idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Have a five-star review in your pocket. Calm and I would love to have it. Lewis would also. Please drop them in your podcast players of choice. We X at idiots underscore pod. And if you want to donate to support the show, there is a link to do so in the description. But until next time, I'm James. And Lewis. I'm Callum. Thank you for listening to the Idiots Podcast, the UK's premier infectious disease podcast. We are supported by the British Infection Association, but they do not have creative control over the episode content So please don't blame them if we get something wrong. Questions, comments, suggestions? Why don't you send them into idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Have a five-star review in your pocket? Calm and I would love to have it. Please drop it in your podcast player of choice. We tweet at idiots underscore pod. And if you want to donate to support the show, there's a link to do so in the description. But until next time, I'm Jane. I'm Callum. See you then. Now that the episode's done, we hope you learn and had lots of fun. So go forth and treat people with some of what you now know. Tom, do you have any crap puns that you didn't include in the uh, in the show proper? Uh, no, I've got no puns about feces. But what I would say is that um, after we recorded, I realised that we didn't even mention that both the podcasts would be supplementary Thanks. to each other. And they would particularly be enriching ding, ding. to have, listen to both episodes, particularly where there's overlap. Although I guess with the limited time that people have for training, maybe you can be a little bit selective about which episodes you listen to. Ding, 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 ding. That's, that's Agar Bingo.
And that, my dear audience, is the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed learning about you know, our laboratory requisitions and things that we are looking for, learning about samples and things like, you know, like adding more media, prolonging incubation, you know, things we do in the laboratory. They're part of their job and how, you know, how can maybe they can be improved. And, you know, sometimes, right, uh, we need communication from the physicians and the lab to make sure, right, what are they looking for? And at the same time, us saying based on the on the procedures that we follow you know the things that we do the things that we don't so communication is essential so stay tuned for the next episode on Malditov about the advantages and disadvantages as always you know definitely great talking to Jame and Callum wish you the best and I hope you know that we get to do another collaboration so as always Continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. You do such great work. So as always, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.